Good evening. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 tonight. Luke 5. And we'll be looking at verses 27 through 32. Luke 5, 27 through 32. Why don't we, we pray? We pray one more time. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your goodness to us. You are, you are good to us. And watch over us and uphold us and take care of us. We thank you that we are your children. And you love us. We are yours because of Christ. Because you have set your love upon us and sent him to purchase us while we were yet sinners. Father, I pray that you would, you would bless us now, bless the preaching of your word. Amen. Amen. Luke 5, 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ Jesus was walking in Galilee. And he saw this sinful tax collector, Matthew Levi. He spoke to him. He said, follow me. And there we see the effectual call taking place. Matthew Levi is born again. He left his old sinful tax collecting lifestyle. And he follows Christ Jesus the Lord. Then we come to verse 29, where we see that Matthew Levi is newly converted, and he has this great feast for the Lord in his home. And at the feast, there's a large number of tax collectors and sinners, and they're sitting and they're eating together with the Lord Jesus himself, as well as the other disciples. Now, the last time that I spoke to you, I was here and I preached, it's been it's been a while now, maybe about a month or so, maybe a little longer. But we looked at this portion and we focused on verses 27, 28, and 29. And like I said, it's been a while. So just to recap, basically what we did that evening was just a, a very light surface skim of this narrative portrait of Matthew Levi. And we examined the principles that are present with Matthew Levi to see if we ourselves are sharing commonality with him as it regards to his experience in true regeneration. Now, if you would, just, just really quick, let's look back at the last two verses we just read, verses 31 and 32. And I'll read them again. And Jesus answered them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What we have with Matthew Levi is a type and example of the, the sick sinners in need of a physician. That what we see in verses 27 to 29 with Matthew Levi is a, a picture, or it's a one example of Christ doing exactly what He tells us He came into the world to do in verses 31 and 32. We want to be like Matthew Levi. The sick sinners that Christ has come to call. But in verses 31 and 32, we are also told just who we do not want to be like. We do not want to be like those that are well and righteous, who do not need a physician, who Christ has not come to call. And just as we can see a type of sinner call to repentance in verses 27 to 29, we can also see a type of the righteous who are not called in verse 30. The grumbling Pharisees and their scribes. Tonight, we're going to specifically focus our attention on them. And we're going to examine the principles that we must not have in common with the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. Or we will find ourselves in hell. So, moving on through these five verses, let's move our focus to verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees and the scribes are witnessing this big feast taking place at this tax collector's house. This tax collector who has apparently now been welcomed in as a disciple of this rabbi Jesus. And at this feast, there is a, a motley crew. Matthew Levi, again, newly converted, has invited all of his friends to this feast. And him being the, the lowest outcast in his society, his friends that he has invited are also the lowest outcasts in this society. Um, as the saying goes, you know, birds of a feather, <laughs> birds of a feather flock together. Well, at this feast, uh, there is a, a big flock of dirty old sinful birds. And, and they're there. Along, there's a, a, a big multitude of sinners here. I just, I just want you to get that picture in your mind. I want you to get a picture of who all's at this feast. Along with tax collectors, there, there's drunks. There's prostitutes. The, the, the worst types of sinners that we could imagine are... are or at this feast, uh, all different types of blatantly public, bold, immoral, sinful people. Matthew Levi has invited them to come to this feast that he is having for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we're told it's a great feast. There, there was an abundance there. It's extravagant. Delicious food, wine, and merriment. Matthew Levi was, would have been very wealthy from being a tax collector. He would have had what would have been considered in those days a, a, a nice home. Where, they, where at this feast, it's, again, it's, it's, it's extravagant. Where they're not just um, eating and drinking, but they're eating 
the very best of food. They're drinking the very best, drinking the, the very best of wine. What we have taking place, it's almost like what we'd have at a wedding reception. It's a celebratory feast. And the Pharisees and their scribes are seeing all of this. Not only is there a great throng of sinners at this great party where Jesus and His disciples are present. He's not just there, but He is actually the head of the feast. He isn't sitting off in the corner somewhere. He isn't like you might be at a you might do at your in-laws family gathering just it's it's awkward so you just sit over in the corner that that's not what's going on here Jesus is the center of this he is the guest of honor at this feast there's a large company at this feast a large company of sinners and Jesus is sitting in the top seat of this den of thieves and again the pharisees and the scribes are witnessing all of this during this day and time, the houses didn't have paying glass windows like our homes have today. The house in which Matthew Levi is having would be very open for, for those standing outside of his home to be able to look in and see and hear what's, what's going on inside. And that's where these Pharisees and scribes are. They're not in the feast. They're not a part of the feast, but standing outside of it, looking on, and they are displeased. They grumble. In the original language, the word for grumble here implies a, a smoldering anger. Smoldering as to say just one or two more pokes and they are going to be engulfed in rage. They are boiling with anger and they're barely keeping a lid on it. They're right on the cliff's edge of losing it. They are angry in their grumbling, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we need to understand why the Pharisees and scribes are so upset about this. We need to figure out a little bit more about these guys. So, what's the quickest way for us to do that? Uh, we could, I'd say we could do one or two things. We can go to the nearest previous place where they're mentioned in Scripture to kind of get the context. Or, or secondly, we can go back to, to where they're first mentioned in Scripture, where they're first mentioned in the narrative, where their origin is. Um, but, but for where we are tonight, we can say that both the nearest previous place the Pharisees and scribes are mentioned is also the very first place that they are, they are mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so if you would look up to verse 17, Luke 5, 17, and, and Jesus' fame has progressively spread all over. And, and in verse 17, we can see where this fame, this news of Him that's been going out has begun to draw in the attention for the first time of the Pharisees and scribes. Verse 17, I'll read it. <clears throat> On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Christ has gotten the attention of the Pharisees and scribes. He's gotten the attention of, like we heard this morning, of Big Eva, the religious establishment, the theologians, the, the bigwigs of the day, the, the keepers and guardians of the Judaic religion. That, that's the Pharisees and scribes. And He has gotten their attention. And they are there to see what's going on with Him. And if you look in your Bibles and notice, they gathered from all over. 
from every village of Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. They've traveled a distance to be present here while Jesus is teaching in this crowded house. And, and again, even though they are the theologians of the day, they are the, the learned men of great influence, yet it's none of them that are teaching. Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, is teaching. They came to see these miraculous works that, that everyone's been talking about and he's been doing. They came to, to hear what, what he's talking about and, and what he's teaching. They're there to inspect. They're there to police. They're not there to be healed of their infirmities. Uh, and they weren't there to sit at the feet of Jesus and be taught either. They're there to police and, and investigate. Now again, here in verse 17, we are for the first time being introduced to the Pharisees and scribes. They're just now meeting Jesus. So you know, even though you know, if, if you've been in Sunday school or ever read a children's book, you know, anything you know about the Pharisees and scribes, it's not too good. Well, at, at this point, we, we don't have any reason to assume when they're first meeting Jesus that they have bold intentions of being in argumentative disagreement with him. But rather, they have simply gathered here out of a curiosity. But yet, even still, we can imagine them sitting there listening to Jesus like a, like a person would listen to a preacher that they're already skeptical of. Um, and, and we can assume that was their disposition because Jesus wasn't one of them. He didn't, he didn't look like them. He didn't come from them. He didn't... He didn't have the, the long dragging robes that they had. He, he didn't have the ornate large enlarged tassels on the borders of his garments that they had. Right. He wasn't one of them. And these ultra uber widely recognized as orthodox theologians of their day were probably all sitting on the edge of their seats as they listened to Jesus tediously trying to analyze and hang on every word that he was saying, maybe see if they could hunt for an error. We have no reason to believe that they are, are humble with readiness to be taught. Rather, they are there setting themselves up as, as at least co-equal or even superior to, to the one who is teaching, Jesus. And, and then what, what happens there is Jesus is teaching a paralytic man that is lowered down from the ceiling, down in front of him. And the first thing Jesus says to the paralytic man is, man, your sins are forgiven you. And in verse 21, you can see the scribes and Pharisees' response. And this, uh, I'll read it. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? We can see there, right off the bat, they, they have a, a, a disposition of being cynically critical in their hearts when Jesus says this right off the bat they're, they're critical and we can get the sense that they think that what they see taking place what Jesus is saying is utter foolishness but other than that they, they thought what he was doing was was blasphemy they zealously oppose what Jesus is doing they believe that this is wrong and right away we see that they think of Jesus to, to have no credibility at all they are right in realizing that no one can forgive sins but God alone. But, but then in verses 22 and 25, if you look, 
Uh, I'll read them as well. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But you, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So again, just, just pointing out, it's laid out right in front of these Pharisees and scribes that this man's sins were forgiven him. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But, it, but it's proven right in front of them that by the fact this paralyzed man is healed. It's, it's proof that his sins were forgiven. And that should have shown the Pharisees and scribes right then that this man is a man of God. This man is not like any other man. This was God incarnate. Surely, who can do these things unless God has sent him? This is the Messiah. But the Pharisees and scribes just don't get it. And Christ called their number out there in front of everyone. They came to that place thinking they really knew all that was to be known. They came to that place thinking they knew about God. They knew about His law. They came into that place having traveled a great distance thinking that they knew something more than this Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus showed them something they had never seen before. And they couldn't understand it. So we have right away in this first interaction between the Pharisees and scribes and Jesus... We see the Pharisees and scribes thinking they are right, but Jesus bested them and clearly shows them that they're wrong. So all, all that being said, let's, let's come back to our, our text, 530. And I, just, I want us to remember that these are the same Pharisees and scribes here, grumbling and complaining with anger. That account there of Jesus healing the paralytic man it's not, not too far from where we are here with Levi. Levi's house is, is he has, Jesus hasn't gone far. Levi's house is not too far from where that was taking place. <laughs> and, and the same Pharisees and scribes who witnessed that are now seeing Christ Jesus and his disciples at this feast full of sinners. And they ask, grumbling, not to Jesus directly, but to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So these Pharisees, these traditional separatist purists, and these scribes, these guardians of, of theological orthodoxy of their day, are not happy that this teacher Jesus, that they have already been having some, some disagreement and quarrel with, already having problems with Jesus, they're not happy that He is doing something they zealously believe ought not to belong in the religion of God. He is eating with sinners. They do not want these type of people, these type of miscreants that are at this feast in the kingdom of God. They are upset because they believe these people have no business whatsoever with God. They do not deserve to be a part of the kingdom of God. And again, to get a clear insight into the mind of what these Pharisees thought about their own standing with God versus what, uh, what they thought about the type of sinners that are at this feast. I'd like to look over at, at one other passage 
over in Luke chapter 18. If you have your Bible, if you would turn there with me. Luke 18. We'll look at verse 9. Luke 18, 9. I'll read it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here, Jesus is giving an illustration of what is a... A real life example telling of two men who go down and pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. And I just want us to take note of the Pharisee's prayer. Right there in verse 11. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Just want to point out two things here. First is the fact that we can see in his prayer clearly that this man thinks himself to be righteous before God. He considers himself righteous in the eyes of God. And the second fact I want to point out is that he despised other men. He despised specifically this individual tax collector that he mentions here. He doesn't even pray for the man. But he prays in a way that shows that he has malice for him. In the mind of the Pharisee here, his righteousness and consistent devotion to religious duty has brought him very near to God and has earned him favor. While at the same time, he believes other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors, sinners, that the same type of people that we see at our feast, back, back in our primary text in Luke 5, the Pharisee looks at those type of people as being beneath him and beneath him in the sight of God. He thinks that he deserves God's blessing and he looks at the tax collector and thinks that surely I'm much more superior than him. Surely I'm much more superior in righteousness before God than he is. In fact, in his mind, God, God would never have anything to do with that tax collector. God would never have anything to do with him. So, so keeping that in mind, coming back to Luke 5, 30. Remember, that's, that, that's the mindset behind the angry, grumbling question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And, and this question itself, it's not a, it's not a genuine inquiry. It, it's more of a, a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical accusation. Like a, like a mother might come in and say, why are your shoes on in the house? Or, or why are you coloring on the wall? That, that's the type of question we have here. And it's, it's really what they're putting forth. It's really an arrogant question that, that challenges Jesus' integrity and legitimacy as a teacher of God. It's accusatory. And, and there, there's something underlying 
here that, that sort of covertly here that I'd like you to consider where these Pharisees and scribes, they've already challenged Jesus one time. Remember, we just looked up at verse 21. And in that encounter, Jesus defeated their attempts to challenge him there. So now, they are looking and hoping for Jesus to slip up so they can say, we told you so. Jesus is a walking contradiction to what they themselves have been doing and teaching. It's already becoming evident that Jesus is doing and teaching contrary to them. And they would love the opportunity to prove him to be false. Or, or at least have Jesus acknowledge that he was wrong. And, and they're right. And then, so in this accusatory question, there is also the fact that the Pharisees and scribes genuinely believe that there is no hope for sinners such as these at this feast. These people are too far gone. Really, that, that's the problem with these men. They don't have an understanding that a man must be born again. These people are too far gone. There's no hope for these sinners at this feast. So that, that's their understanding. And they believe this. I mean, surely a man of God would not be around people like that. They believe with zeal that Jesus and His disciples are sinning by being so intimate with such wretched types of people. So they ask this accusatory question of the disciples, but it's Christ Jesus. If you'll notice, it's Christ Jesus that answers them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So just notice, that's Jesus' answer. Notice He doesn't say, well, I'm sorry. You're right. I, I won't do that anymore. I'm sorry I offended you. I won't be with the sinners anymore. Jesus doesn't say that. He instead gives this beautifully concise statement where he tells the Pharisees and scribes precisely why he is doing what he is doing. It's a statement that perfectly lays out Jesus' intention in a concise way that's not only vindicating in the face of this accusation, but it's also a condemning statement of conviction to the ones that have accused him. It's a beautifully wise response that he gives. Verse 31 and 32 brings to light the fact that the Pharisees and scribes are, are showing nothing but contempt for, for those people who are needy. They despise them. That's, that's what it's showing. But however, much more than that, it's Jesus telling these, these self-righteous Pharisees and scribes that they will see no saving benefit from Him. Christ Jesus responds to the Pharisees by telling them that He has came into the world to, to bring liberty to those that are slaves, to, to bring good news to the poor, victory for the oppressed, sight for the blind, and to rescue the lost. He tells them that He did not come into the world to save people who don't need saving, but rather He came into the world to save those that are utterly hopeless and helpless and, and, and could never possibly save themselves. But he also tells them in comparison with that, very simply, if you are not sick, then you don't need a doctor. He did not come to call a people who have no use of him. The righteous have no need of a Savior who has came into the world to save sinners. Christ did not come to call the righteous. So again, the question is, why does Jesus eat 
with tax collectors and sinners? And the, the answer to the question is, because sinners are, are the very ones it makes sense for the healer of sin-sick souls to be with. He, he tells the Pharisees and their scribes that I am eating and drinking with the people that need me. The righteous do not need me. I have not come to call those that don't need me. Now, let me just point out what should already be the most obvious truth in, in this passage. The most obvious truth about these Pharisees and scribes. And that's the fact that they're not truly righteous. They are not righteous. Scripture teaches, Romans 3, 10-12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ultimately, in reality, in the big picture, we know that these, are, these scribes and Pharisees are sinners. They are not righteous. All their righteous deeds are like filthy rags. However, in their hearts, they believe themselves to be righteous. And believing themselves to be righteous, they have no need of a physician. They have no need of Christ. And here, when Christ says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, that those that are well there, those that are well that have no need, that's not some hypothetical non-existent people. So I just want to make that clear. When Christ says, I have not come to call the righteous, when He makes this statement, He isn't referring to no one. Even though the Scripture also says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is a specific people here. There is a specific people that Christ is referring to. And that is the people that believe themselves to be righteous. For example, just by way of illustration, we can use the same example, same type of example that Christ Jesus uses. Imagine a man who believes himself to be healthy. And imagine in this same world, there is a cure for cancer. For anyone who would just walk down to the doctor's office and take a spoonful of medicine. There's a, there's a cure for cancer there. But this man, he believes himself to be healthy. So he never goes down, ever, and gets a spoonful of that cancer cure syrup. Ever. Doesn't do it. But unfortunately, 90 days later, the man dies. Now, the autopsy report shows that it was cancer that he died of. It really didn't matter that the world of medicine came up with a cure for cancer. And all, all you needed was, was a spoonful of syrup. Didn't matter to this man at all. He's dead. That medicine was of no use to him. He thought he was well. Medicine was of no use to him. And that's the idea behind Christ Jesus' response to this question, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Christ is not in any way suggesting that there are some out there that are, that are righteous. or He's not in any way suggesting in His response that the Pharisees and scribes are righteous and healthy and are in no need of Him. Instead, basically what He is saying is that those who think they are well and righteous and are okay have no need in their hearts for Him. They have no want or desire for Him. In fact, they reject Him. Just like a man who thinks he is perfectly healthy rejects taking a cure for cancer. And that is a, 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 this is a terrible thing. Christ Jesus is saying that those that believe themselves to be righteous will have no part with Him. That is a terrible place to be in. 
He did not come into the world to save those that had no need of him, but he came into the world as a great physician to heal lost, depraved, sin-sick souls. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those that are righteous will ultimately see no saving benefit from God's Messiah coming into the world. Those that are righteous will receive no gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that is a terrible thing. It's a terrible place to be in. It would be better for a person in that place, in that position, as if they would never even been born at all. Because Christ Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no other name under heaven but Jesus. We do not want to be those that think themselves to be righteous. If we are, we will find ourselves in an inescapable hell, suffering unimaginable, unceasing torment. No salvation for those who have no need of a Savior. Now, there have been multitudes of fallen sons and daughters of Adam that are, that are in that category, that are self-righteous. But again, we're looking specifically at just one example of individuals who are self-righteous. The Pharisees and scribes. And, and on top of everything else that we have looked at thus far in regards to their self-righteous behavior, because Jesus is saying this directly in response to their question, we can conclude that the Pharisees and scribes are like those who Jesus is calling righteous and in no need of a physician. We can also make that conclusion by their question itself. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I think the argument could be made, that's the most damning evidence that we have. They, they make, in their question itself, by their own admission, they make a differentiation between themselves and sinners. The Pharisees and scribes think they are different than sinners. That is what those who, who trust in their own imaginary righteousness do. They think they are different than sinners. So where does that put these Pharisees and scribes? Again, it puts them without a physician for their souls. It puts them without a savior. It puts them as uh, the proverbial example for us uh, of a type of self-righteousness that is worth warning about. If you believe yourself to, to be righteous like the Pharisees and scribes, Christ did not come for you. He came for sinners. He came for sinners. Now, I, I have just... In closing, five points of application that I want you to consider. I want you to examine yourself. You do not want to be like the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. So, so point number one, application number one. If you're here tonight and you think yourself to be zealous for the Lord, I want you to consider that these unconverted Pharisees and scribes had a zeal for God. When they, they took their, their bold stand against the grace of the blessed Lord Jesus, when they railed against His integrity with this critical accusation, why do you eat with sinners? And, and I want you to remember the words of the Apostle Paul. He tells us in Galatians 1.14 that before he was converted, he was zealous for the law as a Pharisee. In Philippians 3.5, Paul tells us that as a Pharisee, he was so zealous that he persecuted the church of Christ. 
In Romans chapter 10, Paul tells us how he prays for the salvation of those unbelieving in Israel. He writes that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Although they had zeal, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness. In the book of Acts, chapter 22, Paul, after he was arrested in the temple, he stood before the Jews there and he told them, Acts 22.3, I was zealous towards God as you all are this day. Consider the Pharisee in Jesus' parable that we looked at in just really briefly in Luke 18. He had a zeal. He was, remember, he was quite, he's quite successful in his zeal. He tithed a lot. He fasted twice a week. They were, they were only to have one, one fast a year. This man fasted twice a week. He was successful in his zeal. He was a busy man. He, he was taken up with his religious duties. The Pharisee had a, had a zeal. The Pharisees had a zeal. But their zeal was not the zeal that God approves. It was not a zeal according to knowledge. No matter how zealous you are, God looks at all your best deeds. as They're nothing but, but filthy rags. You are a sinner. You were born evil. Your zeal, all your best works will do nothing to, to contribute to the healing of your soul. Nothing at all. Nothing whatsoever. The old hymn says, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Christ must save and Christ alone. We must not trust in our zeal and our own self-exertion to bring us into favor and acceptance with God. Because that is what the self-righteous Pharisees did. And we see their end. Christ did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Application two. You who profess to be a Christian and are frequently active in the practice of public worship and public prayer. Whether it be in our worship here as, as an assembly, as a church, or at your jobs, or at, at home, or around the table as you eat, or whether it be in family worship, I want you to consider how Christ Jesus condemned the Pharisees' manner of praying. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. In Luke chapter 20, verses 46 and 47, Christ Jesus says to beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And again, remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee in Luke 18 who went up to the temple to pray and said, God, I thank you. I am not like other men. I tithe and I fast. Now, there's much that can be said about all three of those portions of Scripture in regards to hypocrisy and the self-righteous. But I just, I just like to remind you that, that hypocrites are deficient in the duty of private prayer. These unconverted Pharisees and scribes were known to take part in public prayer and in public worship. They were able to convince a lot of people that they had a true relationship with God. 
But really, all they were doing was exalting themselves. Right. And really, that is the commonality that we see in all three of those portions I just recited. A self-exaltation. Their proudness, their pride. Consider that these men were able to convince many that they were pious. And they had true devotion to God. They were able to convince many of that. But, but really, they had no real devotion to God in their secret lives. Whether you are in ministry, whether you are a father or a mother, or, or whether you just have a pew space here at the church. Remember that the Pharisees and scribes were able to come before others and convince them that they were close to God. That they themselves were genuinely living in communion with God. They were able to convince those that looked on them that they were close to God. But all the while, in reality, they knew nothing of the Holy Spirit. They knew nothing of, of regeneration. They knew nothing of a true love and dependence on God. They knew nothing of true prayer. They knew nothing of a of, of real relationship with God. They deeply desired to be considered holy by others. Considered devoted to God by others. They desired to be considered among the very most pious of worshipers. And, and be considered the most knowledgeable of, of theologians. But in reality, they had no true reliance, no true dependence on God. They trusted in self. Examine yourself to make sure you are not the same way. God rejects the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him, not their own self-exaltation. Christ did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Number three, you who profess to be a Christian and have rightly been taught to put into practice the scriptural command to come out and be separate. I want you to consider the separation that the Pharisees and scribes made between themselves and these sinners that the Lord Jesus is eating with. The very ones that the Pharisees and scribes separated themselves from are the very ones that the Lord is eating and drinking with. The New Testament never commands Christians to decline all fellowship with unconverted people. True sanctification and correct separation from the world is not the self-exalting hypocrisy that we see with the scribes and Pharisees who love to be known as the holy people in town. Who, who, it's not walking around with, with smudges on your forehead or, or looking forlorn for everyone else to see. It's not even wearing bearded men on your shirt so that everyone can know that you are reformed. It, it's not extending the, the tassels on your garment. Coming out from among them and be separate does not mean be so weird that when you go buy groceries at Walmart or Food Lion, everyone knows that you're the the only uh, Puritan in town. It, it's, it, it's not habits so where you're so holy that when people see you, they have to take three steps to the side. Come out and be separate does not mean be unapproachable. Come out and be separate does not mean be like the Pharisees and scribes who simply just wrote off an entire part of their own society because they were sinners, because they didn't live up to their own code of holiness. Come out and be separate does not mean to, to hole up in a holy bunker like a monk. And it certainly does not mean to despise those that appear to be openly living in, in bold sin. 
Like the Pharisees and scribes despised them. If you are truly converted, do you, do you remember the grace and mercy of the Lord? The grace and mercy that God has shown you when you're, you're at Walmart standing next to someone who smells like marijuana and they're loud and saying ridiculous things? Do you remember? Do you remember the mercy that God has shown you? When you see thugs and wannabe gangsters that have their pants down and they're saying ridiculous, foolish things, do you despise them or do you pity them? When you see men that, that you know are too lazy to work and they're at a, at a stoplight and they're holding a sign and you know they're too lazy to work, do you despise them or do you pity them? When was the, the last time you saw someone who, who more than likely they have a drug problem? And they're dirty. It looks like they've been sleeping outside. Maybe have used the bathroom on themselves. They look dirty. They couldn't get a job anywhere because of the way they look. And they're sitting outside of a gas station or a store or on the street. When was the last time you went and talked to them? When was the last time you sat down and had a conversation with someone like that? When was the last time you made a friend with someone who didn't have the right clothes or the right color teeth or the right body weight or the right skin color? Just, just what do the self-righteous hypocrites of our day and in this city, in this state, in this town, what do they say about you? Do they say stay away from that guy? Stay away from him because he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Do they say stay away from that woman because she eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Do they say don't, don't be around that family because they eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If the answer is no, then maybe you're the self-righteous hypocrite yourself. More like the scribes and Pharisees than you are like Jesus of Nazareth. Number four, children. Children that, that are with us. Children that have Christian parents. Do not be like the scribes and Pharisees who thought that they had favor with God because they had Christian parents. Because they had, they had parents that were the children of Abraham. Do not think that you have favor with God because of who your parents are. Do not think that because you can answer catechism questions. Or do not think because you sit still some nights in family worship. Do not think because you've memorized some scripture verses that that will spare you from the wrath of God. Do not think, children, that because you obey your mom and dad that that makes you a Christian. It does not. You were not born a Christian. You're here with your parents, but you were not born a Christian. You have to be born again. That was the problem, again, with, with the Pharisees and scribes. Remember in John 3, Nicodemus, he knew nothing of that doctrine. He knew nothing of how to be born again. That wasn't being taught. They had a, a dead orthodoxy. The, the Pharisees and scribes, they saw these tax collectors and terrible sinners and they thought they were too far gone. But they didn't know that what God does is He takes dirty sinners. He takes sinners whose hearts are dirty and, and He gives them a new heart and He cleans them up. Amen. Christ calls sinners to repentance. Children, you are, are, if you are just, just, just as much Maybe more than more likely than anyone else here in the building tonight to have the problem of self-righteousness. 
you're not a little angel. Parents, don't, don't tell your kids that. You're not a little angel. You are bad. You were born bad because your mom and dad are bad. Just like my girls are bad because I'm bad. If you were born into a bad race of people and you need Jesus to save you, He is for all of us, He is our only hope. Number five, you who profess to be a Christian but emphatically insist that you don't consider yourself to be righteous. I would like you to consider the knowledge of the Pharisees and scribes. That they seem, again, cartoonish to us because we've, they've been such a popular subject all of our lives in church and Sunday school. But I'd like you to consider the fact that these are learned men. They're not idiots. They knew the law. Some of them could probably recite the whole Torah. They, they knew the law of God. They could recite Scripture. Scripture that we can't recite. And none of them would have been so ignorant as to think that they were keeping the whole law. None of them would have claimed that. The the question is not, are you a sinner? But instead, I'd like you to ask yourself this question. Are you the sinner? Are you the sinner? Do you see yourself more than anyone else that you know as the sinner? The definite article. Are you the sinner? Do you truly believe yourself to be wicked? Not just in the, the Christianity, the religious sense of the word that everyone uses, but specifically and particularly in your actions in your life, throughout, throughout the way you've lived your life, in specific things as a son, as a daughter, as a parent, as a student, as a, a keeper of your pet, as a as, as whatever it may be throughout the course of your life, do you see that you have been wicked as a parent, wicked as a daughter, uh, an abuser of your, of your own animal? Do you see that you have done wickedly throughout your life? Do you see that you've been a corrupt father, a corrupt mother? As it relates to the sp- specifics throughout your life, do you, do you protect yourself? Do you make excuses for, for your decisions? And, and, or do you blame others? Or do you really see with clear vision that you are a bad person? Or are you a good person? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Christ says that He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, in conclusion, examine yourself. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. If you are, are, are still holding on to yourself, let it go. Or, or your pride is going to be your ruin. Yeah. A proud heart is an abomination to God. God saves the lowly. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Are you the lonely soul that considers him as, himself as nothing? You consider yourself as nothing. Ashamed to, to even look up to heaven like the Pharisee we read about in Luke 18. I'm sorry, the, 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 the tax collector that we read about in Luke 18 who beats on his breast. Ashamed to even look up to heaven because he knows he's a sinner. Ashamed that, that he's such a vile worm. Do you consider yourself to be that unworthy? Or are you the Pharisee? Proud, pompous, and self-righteous. 
Do you esteem others better than yourself? Do you consider yourself the least among the saints? Are you glad to see others excel in gifts in areas maybe where you don't think you're excelling? Are you glad to see others excel? Do you sink low in your opinion of yourself when you look at others? Or are you like the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. Do you, do you know what it is to, to say with Job, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes? Do you have low thoughts of who you are? Can you say with David, I am a worm and not a man? Do you, do you have low thoughts of your own achievements? Can you say with Agur in, in Proverbs 30, uh, I trust what we know that passage where he says, surely I, I, I am too, too brutish to be a man. I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Or are you like the proud, self-exalting Pharisee that says, I thank God I am not like other men, specifically this tax collector. Are you content to be nothing so that Christ will be all in all? Are you content to be a sinner, a guilty, condemned sinner with no righteousness of your own so that Christ will be your own righteousness? Will you humble yourself and be stripped of your filthy rags? Or will you love your sins and sinful self all the way to hell? Examine yourself. The Lord says that He will look to he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Blessed are the poor, for theirs, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Remember that Christ is the enemy of the self-righteous. He did not come to call the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray.